Peace of the Lord be with you. Would you stand and share the peace of Christ with those around you real quick? Give a greeting, give a welcome, take a moment, know each other, love each other, be with each other, introduce yourselves, know each other by name. What are we after tonight and for the nights to come? What I'm after for you, what I pray for you, is that your imagination might be captured by something cosmic and something grand. Imagination that would be the cure to a culture of disenchantment. An imagination that might be more like an alarm clock that wakes up a slumbering faith. An imagination that would give you eyes to see the perspective and horizon of the expansive kingdom of God. I hope you get a diploma while you're here. I hope you make friends and experience all of the joys of what it is to be a human being. But one of the great gifts is to have an imagination that sees reality afresh. That's what I hope for you. But how do we get that kind of imagination? Well, I have a plan. So I said last week, one of my leadership principles is plan beats no plan. I'm gonna come to the meeting with a plan and you can change my mind if you have a better plan, but you can't snark at my plan, destroy my plan if you don't have a plan. If you don't have a plan, my plan wins. If you have a better plan, your plan can win. I don't care whose plan it is, but a better plan has gotta be the what leads us. Plan beats no plan. And so here's my plan, to give you an imagination that might be the means for you to see farther up and further into the high country of the Trinity, where the air is thin but the glory is thick. The first part of my plan is to give you an iconic text, to introduce you to a scripture that you might be able to get inside of yourselves. All scripture is God-breathed, but there are some scriptures that capture the whole narrative. This is one of them, the prologue of John, John 1, 1 through 18. Hear this as if for the first time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing has come into being. And what has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. 
This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all, we have all, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's the prologue. I wanna introduce you to that text. And as I introduce it to you, I want you to learn something. That's the second part of my plan. I want you to learn that the scripture is a bush that burns and is never consumed. I want you to discover that you can keep going back to it again and again and again and never tire of it and continue to allow it to speak and to give your life new purpose and new meaning. That this word might be the very means that could satisfy and nurture a soul that is brave and that is beautiful. I want you to discover and learn that keep going back to it is a good thing. The best things in life, the best things, we keep coming back to again and again. I'm part of a, a pastor's group called the Kingfisher Society. It's, it's made up of four or five friends, pastors from around the country, and we send photographs of things that we're reading or quotes I got a, um, got a text from uh, my friend T. Gatewood, who's a pastor in North Carolina. And it's a book that we're reading together called Running with the Horses by Eugene Peterson, The Quest for the Best Life. And here's a quote that I just wanted to share with you because it captures that second part of the plan. Peterson writes, the mark of a certain kind of genius is the ability and energy to keep returning to the same task relentlessly, imaginatively, curiously for a lifetime. Never give up and go on to something else. Never get distracted and be diverted to something else. Augustine wrote 15 commentaries on the book of Genesis. He began at the beginning and was never satisfied that he had got to the beginning. He never felt that he got to the depths of the first book of the Bible, down to the very origins of life, the first principles of God's way with us. He kept returning to those first questions. Beethoven composed 16 string quartets because he was never satisfied with what he had done. The quartet form intrigued and challenged him. Perfection eluded him. He kept coming back to it over and over in an attempt to mastery. We think he did pretty well with them, but he didn't think so. So he persisted, bringing fresh, creative energy to each day's attempt. The same thing over and over, and yet it is never the same thing, for each venture is a resplendent with dazzling creativity. The same thing over and over again, and yet it is never the same thing. That's one of the things that I want you to learn about the Bible, but also about your life. Going back to the first principles, the same things might be the very means by which you discover some deeper meaning in your life. And so don't be tired of doing good. We keep coming back to the prologue of John, and I want you to learn that as we do that, it may be a means by which we get new kind of insights, because everything about our cultural moment right now says, hurry, go fast. And what I want you to do is take a deep breath and slow down. Yes. 
I mean, in the academy, you're, you're taught to just to read as many pages as you can. You, you're masters at skimming it. And you gotta do that sometimes. And there are things worth skimming, believe you me. But the prologue is not one of them. Here we're gonna read it slow. And we're gonna do that by practicing something. I wanna introduce you to an iconic text. I want you to learn that you can keep coming back to this again and again, and it will teach you some foundational truths. And I want us to uh, learn that by practicing internalizing the scripture, internalizing the word. I said last week that anyone who memorizes the prologue of John and is willing to say it to me, possibly up here, gets a steak dinner. Now, I talked to Kristen about that, and I have an amendment. Because <laughs> if all of you do this, and if I have my way with you, all of you will be able to say this by the end of the semester. Because we're going to break this down slowly. We're not going to have a steak dinner. It's going to be ground steak in the form of a burger. But let me tell you this. I make one of the best burgers this side of the Mississippi, maybe both sides of the Mississippi. My burger can preach. So I just want you to know, my burger is worth the investment of these 18 verses to get this deep into your soul, to groove it like the best music, pressed into vinyl so that you can put that needle down and spin it whenever you want. And if you spin it, you will eat it. You will eat Trigvi's burger. So tonight, I want us to introduce, I want us to practice John 1, 1 through 2. That's what we're going to, that's our pocket tonight. We're just going to take a little bit. We're going to chew it slowly like, like the best steak. You don't gulp a good wine. You savor it. You taste it. Did you know that Bruce Benedict is a sommelier? Do you know what that is? That's like a wine expert. If you're ever figuring out, like one of my favorite things to do is I'm out to eat dinner and I don't know what wine to order and I just like text Bruce and within like 30 seconds without, without fail, he says, order this. It's fantastic. Tonight we're gonna order John 1, 1 through 2. So repeat after me, repeat after me. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Awesome. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. That's John 1 1 through 2. You're on your way to a fabulous burger experience. Let's try to do it all together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One more time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Man, you got it. You're so smart. I'm going to have a lot of burgers. John 1, 1 through 2. It's a powerful verse. These two simple verses that open up the prologue, if we pay attention, has the power to capture our imagination so that we can see reality anew. It has the dimensions to see cosmically more than Star Wars. This is a story that is true. Its reach has shaped the theological canon of two millennia of reflection. 
Nearly every major church controversy has come back at one point or another to these two verses. It sets the stage for our Christology. It is the spine in the doctrine of the Trinity. If this is true, then everything else pales in comparison. If this is true, it is the source of truth. It's a powerful verse. But what's it say and what's it mean and how do we apply this to our lives, this truth? Well, here's a pro tip when you interpret the Bible or a fancy uh, academic word, exegete. Say that word with me, exegete. You wanna impress your friends like, hey, let me exegete your life. Let me break this down for you. It's just a way of interpreting. A pro tip to interpret the Bible, here it is. Never overlook the obvious. Sometimes in the academy we can try to find all the things underneath the text, behind the text, but sometimes we miss the text itself, just the simple truth of what it's trying to tell us. Shout out to me if you can tell me what these first two verses pivot around. The word. Thank you. Never overlook the obvious. In the beginning was and the word was with God and the was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything pivots around the word. The word is the subject and the object of these two sentences. And if If this is true, everything that follows in the next 18 verses and throughout the next 21 chapters of the Gospel of John bears witness to these two verses about the Word. If we don't get what the Word is, we won't be able to interpret, to exegete the rest of the Scripture, the rest of this story. If we don't understand the word, we won't won't allow our imaginations to expand and to bend reason into its proper shape. We need to see what this word is and to understand its meaning and its full consequence. Now, our scriptures are meant to be translated. Of course, they weren't written in English. They were, the Gospel of John was written in Greek. And the Greek word for the word is the logos. I love that, the logos. That sounds so mythic, primordial. The logos means the divine reason or the divine discourse or the divine plan. It is simply translated here, the the word, the logos. I love the logos. I love to savor it, to taste it to meditate on it. The Logos is God's whisper to a waiting world. I love the Logos. It is the word that intoxicates me with wonder because it is making a claim, a claim that bends my reason back into that original shape. It is a claim that ignites my imagination like a fire. It is the claim that is like an alarm clock that gives me the imagination to wake up my slumbering faith. It is a claim that orients me to the way things are supposed to be. And don't we need that claim more than ever right now? It it is a claim about the word and who the word is. 
the word was and with and is. The word, it says, in the beginning was the word. Back in the very beginning before time happened, there was the word. Time came into being through the word. The word is outside of time, but then has the power to come into time. The word is primordial. In the beginning was, before there anything was, there was the word. It is eternal. It is definite. It is definitive. It is divine. The word was in the beginning. And the word was with God. This Word has a relationship. It's, it's a relational connect, connectivity with. It's one of those powerful words, isn't it? To be with someone. Maybe you're hoping to ask somebody out. Maybe you're hoping somebody will ask you out so that you could be with them. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That word desires relationship, connectivity, intimacy. The word itself is as fragile as a breath, but a breath that communicates like a kiss is tender and loving. In the beginning was the word, at the very beginning, and the word was with God, and the word was God, is God. It's, it's a divine mystery. Here we begin to unpack this doctrine of the Trinity that there is this eternal God and the second person, the Son of God. They are different and yet the same. He was at the beginning with God. He was with God. He is God. And this is the claim that we have to get straight because if we miss this, later on, when the revelation comes about this word, that the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's un, only son full of grace and truth, this word from him, all things receive grace upon grace. If we don't get that this word is God, was with God, is at the very beginning before all things, if we don't understand that this revelation of Jesus is God, we will miss the consequence of the cross. We will misunderstand the significance of the resurrection. We will misinterpret who this prophet king is, Jesus. It is a profound claim that is being made. The word was in the beginning and was with God, was God. He was in the beginning with God. Over and over again, if we keep coming back to this, sipping and savoring it, it's impossible for us to miss the fundamental claim that is being made, that this word not only has a relationship with God, but this word is God. And later when it is revealed that this word has a personal name and face and body named Jesus Christ, later when we receive that revelation, it transforms our imagination to see everything differently. That this single human being is the source of all things. I love the word. The logos, the eternal reason, the discourse, the divine plan. And what is that mean for us though 
If this word is with God, this word is God, was God, and it is connected to Jesus Christ, it means this, that there is a continuity between who Jesus is and who God is. It means that Jesus is more than just a prophet, more than just a myth or a metaphor, dispensing principles and divine values like candy from a Pez dispenser. It means that God is taking the time to put on flesh and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. It means that Jesus and God are the same thing, the same substance, the same rationality, the same reason. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. That's a remarkable, remarkable claim. It also means that there is no discontinuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I love the God of the New Testament, so much grace. And there's so much judgment and hate in the Old Testament. If it is true, what we are reading, that this word was at the very beginning, is with, with God and is God, it means that Jesus Christ, who comes in the New Testament, and all that follows, there is not a discontinuity between the old and the new, between the, the covenant and the fulfillment of the promise. The same God was the same yesterday, and today, and tomorrow, and forever. The word is God. And this word is Jesus. That's the big idea, my friends. That's what John doesn't want us to miss. In fact, John's whole purpose for writing the prologue is to evangelize this truth. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different stories of Jesus, of the history, the recording, the life and times events, the sayings, the doings of Jesus Christ. The fourth is the Gospel of John, written by the beloved disciple whose nickname is the Evangelist. The Evangelist. John wants to evangelize you. John wants to capture your imagination with a cosmic story, a story that is localized in your life. John has an agenda, and that agenda is that you will come to know and believe in Jesus. At the very end of the Gospel of John, John 20, verse 31, it says, these things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and through believing, you may have life in his name. John's the evangelist. That's what's going on here. John wants to persuade you that this big idea about the word is true in the really true sense. Not in just a subjective personal opinion sense, but in the ontological sense, whether you believe it or not sense. He is saying that the word is God. And he wants you, he wants you to know this because he loves the word. He loves the word. And that's the, those are the things that you evangelize, the things that you love. Come with me to St. Andrews, Scotland. It's 2002. Are you born yet? Yeah, you're born, you're alive. You're, you're kicking and screaming and spitting and swearing somewhere on the earth, right? You're there. Well, where I'm at, 2002, I'm in St. Andrews, Scotland, and it's September 22, it's a Sunday. 
and I'm on my way to church. I'm new in town. I had just started my PhD program and I'm wandering around trying to find a place to worship. I asked somebody on the street where a church is and they pointed me to St. Andrew's, St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. So that's where I went. And I went and I sat down just like this. You and kind of wooden pews that creak with old stained glass and weathered stone on the outside. It felt like a good place to go to church. I sat down, got my liturgy, and we started singing and praying and listening. And I'm new in town. I'm also single. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I really desire to be with someone. I'm 29 years old. I'm looking around and I noticed that there was this young woman sitting with the person who I had asked directions from on the sidewalk. I, I looked at her again. She was really cute. Cute's not the right word. She was stunning. Worshiped and came to the table and said some prayers. I don't know what I exactly prayed for, but I'm sure it had something to do with with. <laughs> Went outside and I sat on a bench. And while I was sitting there, some friends from my theology seminar came outside and they were all together and there was this stunning young woman with them. Well, this was promising. And this group of people invited me to go to brunch. I said, yes. And we went to brunch. Lo and behold, I found my way sitting right next to this stunning young woman who I saw in worship. This is before dating apps. Uh, church was a good place to meet people. It still is. Even better when you meet somebody and you find yourself sitting next to them at brunch. I found out that this young woman's name was Kristen. And I found out that uh, she was late coming into the semester, but she was part of our theology seminar. Thank you, the Lord. <laughs> it was a long table. There was probably about 15 or 20 of us sitting at this, kind of taking over this whole long, and so that it meant that there were kind of two different groups of conversation. And Kristen just kept having a conversation over here, and I wanted to have a conversation here. So I kept trying to ask questions, and I asked question after question, and it was one of those moments where every time I asked a question, there was a significant overlap of, 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 of things in our life, of, of places that we loved, of books that we read, but again and again, she just kept looking the other way, talking the other way. But I want to tell you right now, I was in. I was smitten. I, I was bedazzled. I was, uh, I was ensnorkeled. I, like this, 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 was, this was a whole other kind of person to me. We, we exchanged pleasantries. I went back and I wrote my best friend. And I said, I just met this amazing young woman. That was September 22, 2002. It would take me about a month October 26, a Saturday, to get her to go for a long walk with me. 
I schemed, I, I de developed a whole kind of plan. I, I figured out like where she sat at the library and who her friends were. I did like the deep dive, uh, figuring out like what her interests were, all of these different things. I'm checking out like new books on political theology. She was doing political theology and imagination. Oh, I'm like, this is awesome. Finally, October 26 came and uh, went for a walk with Kristen. Uh, um, there's a hill up above St. Andrews. We found an old path. And I had written out a hundred questions and put them in a bag just in case like we didn't have anything to talk about because I didn't want to, I didn't want this to be awkward. Not like going for a walk and having a guy with a hundred questions in a bag isn't awkward. <laughs> On that walk, I fell in, I, I want to tell you, I fell in love. I, I didn't really know what that really meant, but I fell hard and it was real. And it was one of those things where it wasn't just like um, a crush. It was almost unsettling because it felt like I had found home. That's what I hope you find if you ever are with someone that it feels like home. Chris and I went on this walk and October 26, bless you, 2002. <laughs> And we've been walking ever since, past together, every day. It hasn't been a day since October 26 where I haven't talked to Kristen. And when I fell in love and we started walking together and it took her a little longer than I, to, to find love. But she got there, she got there. And one of the things that I did when I, when, I, when I fell in love, you know what I did? I wrote everyone I knew. I wrote my mom, I wrote my dad, I wrote my sisters, I wrote my sister's friends. <laughs> I wrote my friends, people in high school and in college and in seminary. I like talked to strangers at the coffee shop. Said, you know what just happened to me? I fell in love. I was like the evangelist for love. I was just wanting to share everyone that I knew. There's a woman named Kristen, and I love her. That's what an evangelist does. An evangelist shares what they love. And it, true evangelism is always relational in context. Which is maybe why that word evangelism sometimes can be a trigger for people, at least it is for me. It has been in my life, the word evangelism, to be an evangelist. I, I, I've always kind of, sometimes if I'm honest with you, if I'm vulnerable with you, I've kind of like not always been attracted. I've grown up into certain circles where evangelism felt like trying to win a contest. You go on a, the, the mission trip and we'll go out now and, and share your faith and go out and try to convert people. And... I, I just recoiled from that. Sometimes evangelization can be used trying to win an argument, not care for people. Use words and arguments to manipulate rather than to love. Evangelism can go sideways, and, and God can use that, even that. I, I, I know that that's true. I'm just saying true for myself that that word evangelism can be a trigger, and maybe it is for you. I turn on the TV and I see people, preachers, 
And I'm constantly, is this what I sound like? Is this how I come across? I don't want that. This idea that you're using Jesus to, to make money or profit or set up status in individualist kingdoms. Evangelism can go sideways. Evangelism can, can be used by charlatans. But John is not a charlatan. He is a theopoetic of the first order. And he uses language again and again to invite us into a deeper understanding of relationally. John is a, an evangelist that chooses language that people will know and understand. Just consider the word, the logos, this divine reason, discourse, this divine plan. John is using language, choosing language that is speaking to two audiences at the same time so that they might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's speaking to a Hellenistic world. A Hellenistic Greek world would have heard the logos, the word, and immediately understood what John meant. The Logos was the divine order. It is the highest platonic form. It is the sunum bonum. It is the unseen things of the, of the invisible that is ordering all things. The Greeks would have understood that the Logos was meant to be God. And at the same time, the Hebrew imagination, the Jewish imagination, which John is, would have also been speaking directly to that audience. He's remixing, of course, Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered over the face of the deep and a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. A Hebrew mind would have heard in the beginning was the word and immediately recognized that John is remixing Genesis 1 and making a dramatic claim that this is God. Both the Hellenistic mind and the Hebrew mind, though different cultures, nurtured by different associations, would have both understood by the choice of John's metaphor what he is trying to communicate, and he's doing that to invite them into a new kind of relationship. John chooses language that is missional, but that mission is never manipulated, manipulative. It is a mission that invites a new kind of relationship to be with, to be with God. The word is God's universal truth for all times and all people and all places. The word is true whether you're in America or Afghanistan. The word is true whether you're in Iran or Egypt. Whether you're in Tokyo or Omaha, Russia or Canada, New England, New Zealand, wherever you are at, the truth is the same, that this word is with God and was God he was in the beginning with God. The word is God's mission to a waiting world. And what I believe is this word, this very breath of God that takes on flesh, finite form, continues to speak to us tonight. 
This is a word that was meant to be translated. And because it's meant to be translated, it is the very energy that is causing to cross borders, to invite a new generation like you to pay attention to its cosmic consequence and life-changing significance. What does this word mean? It means that there is a God, which means that you are not God. Isn't that freeing? But this is a God that doesn't keep his distance. This is a God who comes to us, reveals himself to us, breaks his life for us, saves us. This is a God that shows up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word is God's compass to orient us outside of our narrow personal experience. It is the hand that picks us up out of the ditch of a cultural and nominal Christianity. The word is what launches us into that wide, expansive geography of the kingdom of God where we will breathe the fresh air of faith in our lungs through the revelation that is the word, the logos, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this word that continues to whisper and speak. Continue to speak. Continue to show up in real ways. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.